Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers, and it's episode 79. We talked last time about DUI, reasonable suspicion for DUI, and today we're going to talk about probable cause for arrest for DUI. And again, DUIs, you know, they can be really complicated, but they're so important. They're probably some of the most important cases that you do. These cases and your interpersonal violence cases, your domestic violence cases, these are homicide prevention cases. And all the work we put into them, we never really get to see the lives that we save. When we take these people off the road, we put them under supervision, when we hold them accountable for their intoxicated driving, we catch so few people and so many people get away with it so often uh, that the work, the very few cases that we do become very important. And they do really have an impact. The data is clear that they have a very significant impact on highway fatalities and maimings and so on. So it's crucial work. But I want to talk about today probable cause and specifically how do we make sure that our certificate of analysis is admissible in court. You know, the fundamentals for getting a certificate of analysis admitted in court are, you know, basically four fundamentals, right? Number one, I got to be able to demonstrate that the person was operating a motor vehicle, that they were on a public highway, that they were, number three, validly arrested for an offense under 182266, not for some other crime. I'm not arresting for anything else. I'm arresting for DUI, maybe and something else, but certainly DUI at least. And I'm making the arrest within three hours of the offense, right? So those are my four requirements, operating a motor vehicle on a public highway, validly arrested for, for 266 for a DUI, and I'm arresting that person within three hours of the offense. So I want to talk about those requirements today. And let's start with you know DUI. Again, we talked about this last time, but I think it's crucial to remember what the offense is. You know, go back and read the code section. It's unlawful in Virginia to drive with a blood alcohol content of more than 0.08. Okay, great. So once we have the certificate of analysis, we can figure that out. But even if we don't get a certificate analysis, it's unlawful in Virginia to drive under the influence of alcohol. That's the offense, right? And that's the same as drunk in public, right? The whole concept of being under the influence is that, you're, uh, that you have consumed enough alcoholic beverages to affect your manner, disposition, speech, muscular movement, general appearance, or behavior as to be apparent to observation. So your observations are crucial here, right? It's not a very high standard. You don't have to prove the person's a 0.08 when they were driving in order to arrest somebody validly for a DUI, right? The, the PBT, which we'll talk about in a second, is great evidence. But in general, the observations you make on the scene are some of the most important observations that we're going to make for proving a DUI case. The certificate of analysis be darned, right? Never mind what it says. And we might get one, we might not. It might be admissible, it might not. But what you show at the scene, what you collect at your scene is going to help us prove whether the person's under the influence of alcohol or if it's a drug, that it's some self-administered intoxicant that impairs their ability to drive a motor vehicle, right? But the impairment requirement is with drugs, not with alcohol. Alcohol is just under the influence. So again, we have these requirements that I'm going to have to show probable cause of, right? And so if I'm going to demonstrate that this person is somehow under the influence of a drug or under the influence of alcohol, before we get into all the technical stuff, the PBT and the certificate and so on, you know, I, why not just ask somebody, how does this drug, how does this alcohol make you feel? How do you feel, right? And, and, and again, I think somebody's 
responses aren't going to be fatal if they say, hey, I feel okay. But especially when you're talking about marijuana, where there is no per se limit in Virginia. We don't have a per se limit, and it's sometimes hard to prove intoxication. The person admits that they've used marijuana. Um, how does it make you feel? Why do you use marijuana? How do you feel when you use it? What is it? What is the effect on you? Uh, if you've consumed alcohol, you know, how do you feel right now? What did you feel when you were consuming it? What are you feeling now? You know, ask them for this information. It can be very useful information, but especially when we're talking about drugs, right? Somebody's on Ambien, somebody's on some, you know, crazy cocktail of drugs. Ask them what the drug usually makes them feel like when they consume it, uh, and that can be some really powerful evidence. Now, of course, the PBT, when properly administered, is some of the most powerful evidence we can get in alcohol cases. Because the PBT, this is the only place in the Virginia Code where the Virginia Code actually defines what probable cause is. If you get a positive result, 0.01 on a PBT, that is probable cause to arrest somebody for DUI. Now, wow, that's awesome, right? If you can demonstrate that somebody had alcohol in their system with your PBT, boom, end of story that you have probable cause for the arrest. Now, the defense will argue um, that you didn't do the rights advisement properly or that you didn't give the rest proper, the, the test properly or the PBT wasn't calibrated or you weren't trained properly or there was mouth alcohol or whatever. You know, the one that I see people actually make a mistake on is the advisement of rights. That's the one where you really do need to be careful because a lot of officers will say, this can't be used against you in court. And that's not true. A PBT can be used against you in court. It can't be used against you to prove your guilt for the offense of DUI. So it's true that it can't be used against you at trial for DUI. But I can definitely use a PBT against somebody who is arguing that their arrest was unlawful, that you lacked probable cause. The result of the PBT is coming in to evidence uh, if you are offering it to demonstrate that you had probable cause to arrest somebody. And there are judges out there who will exclude the PBT if you promise somebody that this test can't be used against them, period, end of story. So do watch out for that, right? Do be careful with the language that you use. A PBT definitely can be used against somebody in a motion to suppress, in a pretrial hearing, um, in other kinds of hearings. It's just that the PBT can't be used against them to prove them guilty of DUI. Um, but again, the whole purpose of the PBT is to help demonstrate the probable cause determination. Now, like I said, if I'm trying to get my certificate of analysis admitted in court, it's crucial that I prove those four things. The person's operating a motor vehicle on a public highway, they're validly arrested for an offense under 266, a DUI offense, and the arrest takes place within three hours of the offense. So let's start with this idea that the person's operating a motor vehicle. Operation in Virginia is a lot more than just driving a car. And I think it's worth us spending some time taking a look at operation and what it means. You know, an operate, operator is somebody who's driving or in actual physical control of a vehicle. But operation is also somebody who's exercising control over or steering a vehicle that's being towed by a motor vehicle. And so that can be starting an engine or manipulating the mechanical equipment of a vehicle or manipulating the electrical equipment of a vehicle without even putting the car in motion, without even driving. I might just engage the machinery of the vehicle uh, alone and not even drive it. And there's lots of cases about this. 
Um, there is no rule that the vehicle, that the engine has to be on or that the ignition switch has to be on for somebody to be in operation of a motor vehicle. Um, there's a lot of argument among prosecutors and lawyers and so on whether or not, you know, operating the radio in a car is operation. And, and maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Maybe your judge will think so. Maybe you won't. You know, if you take that to a jury, a jury is probably not going to be too excited about convicting somebody of DUI if all they're doing is operating the radio. Uh, but the point is, you know, when you have these cases, and let's face it, a lot of these cases are you find somebody in a parking lot or you find someone who's crashed and the vehicle is immobilized, but the person appears is either in the vehicle, maybe they're trapped in the vehicle, they've somehow got the vehicle on. Um, the ignition, we don't have ignition switches anymore. We don't have keys anymore in mo most modern cars. Um, but, you know, in a situation where the vehicle is off, the key in the old days, you know, the key was in the off position and there's nothing engaged mechanically or electrically, well, that car is not being operated, right? But if you have somebody who's passed out on the side of the road and the engine is off, but the dashboard lights are illuminated, the keys in the ignition, the gear shift is engaged, um, and the person says, or you can prove that they drove to get there, that can be operation, right? Even if they're passed out on the side of the road with just with the engine off and just the electrical and, uh, and engaged. They don't even have to be in the driver's seat. Uh, somebody grabbing the steering wheel from the passenger seat can be operation. Uh, and that's Duggar versus Commonwealth, which is a 2003 case. That's somebody who was a passenger in a car, but they grabbed the steering wheel. And you'll see this a lot with cases where people try to switch places in cars, right? Uh, somebody will, you'll try to stop someone and they'll quickly try to switch places. Or you're pulling into, the, you know, you're, you're, you see them on the side of the road stopped and you pull up and they're switching places in the car. You know, they both bought themselves DUI in that situation because both of them had an operation uh, of the vehicle. But again, it is, the vehicle itself doesn't even have to be functional. So if you have a vehicle crash stuck in a ditch or something like that, uh, that can still be in operation if their person is still in possession and still in actual physical control. Um, there's a case called Rosenbaum versus Commonwealth where the intoxicated uh, driver is on a motorcycle seat and he's trying to touch two wires together on the handlebars the vehicle is sparking, it's turning over, but it's not starting. It's not able to start because the vehicle is, there's something wrong with it. Uh, that was considered to be operation, right? He's got some electrical activity going and the vehicle is not even capable of running, uh, but it doesn't matter. That's still considered to be operation. In Nichols versus Commonwealth, which is a 1971 case, so we're going way back here, um, almost 50 years, but the headlights were on, the heater was on, um, and the vehicle didn't have any transmission fluid, so it wouldn't run, but the engine, he would, he tried to run it in high gear, didn't go anywhere. And that was considered to be operation. But if you look at leak, which is a 1998 case, that's a vehicle where the, the truck is stopped in the travel lane. Uh, the engine's running, the headlights and taillights are on, and he's outside the vehicle, uh, looking into the interior compartment of the car. So he's not even in the car anymore and he's considered to be in control. And think about that when you talk about the crash cases, right? If the vehicle is still in operation, a lot of times we think about, oh, can we show the time of the crash? How do we show the time of the crash? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we get to hold time in the crash thing, if the vehicle is still running when you come up on it, uh, that can still be operation, even if this moron is walking around in the 
in the uh, on the street uh, or outside of the car if they're still in physical control, right? And you'll see this a lot too with people who have those little key fobs. The key fob is still in their pocket, right? That might be still powerful evidence that that's where the key fob is located. Now, I mean, in Overby, the vehicle is off. It's on the side of the road, the hood's up, and the suspect in this case is looking into the engine. Well, that case was not operation, right? That vehicle was off, and that's not an operation of a motor vehicle. Um, but uh, again, you know, engaging in a vehicle interlock um, or, you know, starting the car up or starting up the electrical equipment, that is considered to be operation. So again, the crucial factors here that I've got to get my certificate analysis in, I've got to prove operating motor vehicle on a public highway, uh, validly arrested for uh, 182.266 for DUI within three hours of the offense, right? I've got to prove all those things. And so Highway of the Commonwealth, and we could do a whole episode about Highway of the Commonwealth, so I'm not going to dive too deep into this, but remember Highway is... Uh, any way or place, whatever, that's open to the use of the public for vehicular travel. And under the code, it includes private roads, such as, you know, ring roads around malls. It What it excludes is places where there's a single owner who could block access to the property. That's private property. So initially, you know, remember that even if something is private property, like a shopping mall, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a highway of the Commonwealth. And so you may still be able to get a certificate of analysis admitted, even though you have a place that is um, uh, closed to, excuse me, that is not closed, that is not owned, is not operated, is not paved by VDOT and so on. Now, there was a case called Kim versus Commonwealth, a case from Fairfax, it's just Virginia Supreme Court case, where it was a apartment complex that had no trespassing signs up, that said it was not, you know, people weren't um, unauthorized visitors, not permitted lots of restricted access, that was not considered to be a public highway. So even though you will have like a ring road that everybody has access to around an apartment complex, that will be considered to be a public highway. Um, and there's a lot of, you'll see housing developments that are private property, but they're open to the public. People can drive through them. You will from time to time see like a gated community that where the private property owners have controlled access, and that's not a public highway. So an arrest for DUI there won't give you a certificate of analysis. Now remember, and I think people sometimes get this mixed up, it doesn't mean you can't arrest somebody for DUI there, right? DUI is an offense under 18.2, not 46.2. It's not required. I can I could be arrested for DUI on private property. It's just that I haven't impliedly consented to have my breath or blood taken. So if you're going to get my blood, you're going to have to get a search warrant. And you really can't use my breath because the breath certificate is only admissible if you have implied consent. So if you're making a private property DUI arrest on a place that's you know restricted, no trespassing, or that gated community, or uh, that apartment complex that's closed to the public, or wherever it's private property, you can make that DUI arrest. But you just aren't going to be able to use implied consent. You're going to have to get a search warrant to get that person's blood. So again, we have these four requirements, right? The person has to be operating a motor vehicle on a public highway. They have to be validly arrested for DUI, right? That's the third requirement to get the certificate of analysis admitted. And uh, so, for example, in Roseboro versus Commonwealth, this was a single vehicle accident um, and on a private road in a gated residential complex. 
the officer read the person, uh, didn't read, bother reading the person complied consent, but said, hey, will you consent to a breath test? And the court says, well, that doesn't do any good because the breath certificate is only admissible in an applied consent situation. And so the breath certificate was considered uh, not admissible. And that's a case out of Alexandria. I actually used to uh, work with that the officer from that case. He's a very, very good DUI officer and, in fact, trained uh, DUI for years. Uh, but in this case, if you're trying to use implied consent to get the breath certificate in, it's not going to work. You need to have a statutorily valid arrest on a public highway. And the arrest has to be for DUI. So if, 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 you're, if the sequence of events here, you can lay it out, it's I'm making the arrest for DUI and then I'm drawing blood or then I'm getting uh, breath. And if I'm not, if I don't have implied consent, I'm making my arrest for DUI. And then after that, I'm getting my search warrant and I'm taking that person's blood. Uh, but it has to be an arrest for DUI. In, uh, in Ibanez versus Commonwealth, which is a case that out of Campbell County, from January, this was a case where an officer came up on a crash. It was a rural area. The vehicle was crashed, crushed on all sides. It was a rollover accident. And it's in a rural area. When he gets there, there's only one person on the scene. The emergency responders show up, but there's only um, the, the suspect on the scene. He smells of alcohol. His eyes are bloodshot. He's got slurred speech. His face is covered in blood. So the officer does a really good job here of asking questions. He says, hey, man, what's going on? How did you get here? He said, well, I'm on my way home from a friend's house. And then he admits that he's on his way home from a bar. He had just left a bar. So the officer says, well, how much did you have to drink? And of course, he says two to three beers because everyone says two beers, uh, which is a total lie. There's no way you can get to 0.08 with two beers. I guess if they're like, you know, beers the size of your, you know, torso or something, maybe. Um but uh, ultimately, his BAC is a 0.214, so two to three beers is just not true. The truck is not even registered to the suspect. So the question here is the officer arrests him and uh, and gets his BAC, and it's 0.214. So the question here is, is, there, uh, is this a valid arrest for DUI? Does a certificate of analysis, is it admissible in this case? Where the only evidence of him driving is the crash, his statements, and the, and the vehicles doesn't come back to him. Well, here the court says it's reasonable to conclude that he's the driver, right? It's a rural area. There's no one else around. There's no explanation of who the other driver was. And when he's asked, how does this crash happen? His answer is, I'm on the way home from my friend's house, but I just left a bar and I, I consumed two to three beers. And the court says, well, that's the kind of answer that someone would give if they were the driver of a car, not if they were the passenger of a car. And he's the only person present who could possibly be driving. So in this case, the court says that's enough to prove that he was in operation of this vehicle. So a good case for us, good result, right? But you do need to uh, lawfully be arresting somebody for uh, DUI. In Park versus Commonwealth, which is a case from May, this is another crash case. Officers respond. Uh, here, the defendant is hiding. Uh, his speech is slurred. His, his eyes are bloodshot and glassy. He smells like alcohol. He didn't know where he was. He couldn't find his driver's license. And he admits that he's been driving. And he says, I drove off the road. I drove, you know, too early for my exit. Um, he refuses all FSTs and he doesn't get a PBT. The officer doesn't even offer him the PBT. So the officer arrests him for DUI and the defendant refuses his breath, breath test, right? And 
remember, it's not the refusal. It's the unreasonable refusal after you've read been read the consequences of refusal form. That's what refusal is, right? So him sitting in the back of the car and saying, I'm not going to take any tests. That's not the refusal offense, right? Uh, but we're getting to refusal, right? Because refusal is the same as implied consent, right? It is I, Refusal is an offense if the person is operating a vehicle on a public highway in the Commonwealth. Uh, there is no implied consent if you're on a private highway. Uh, operating a vehicle on a public highway, validly arrested for DUI within three hours of the offense of driving. So the officer here, when he when the when the suspect refuses, when Mr. Park refuses, he reads him the information about consequences of refusal form. And again, the defendant refuses. So now the officer says, Great, I'm gonna still get a search warrant for your blood. Now, this is a great this is great because uh, this is something that a lot of officers have started to do is say, wait, wait, hang on a second here. I still want your BAC, right? Refusal is a civil offense. Uh, refusal, now you can get an inter- you can get an ignition interlock and you can get a restricted license on refusal. So I still want to prove DUI. I don't want to just rest on the refusal. So here the officer gets a search warrant for the defendant's blood and he gets a BAC of 0.14. So... Uh, he goes to trial and he says, the officer unlawfully arrested me for DUI. He didn't have probable cause. The officer didn't offer me a PBT. And so the arrest was unlawful. And he lied to me when he read me the consequences of refusal form because he didn't, because he still got a search warrant and still got my blood. So, you know, what good is my refusal if he's still getting a search warrant for my blood? Uh, that's, you know, he tricked me basically. And here the court says, no, no, man. First of all, definitely there's probable cause to arrest you for DUI, Right. Um, but here, what's interesting is the officer doesn't offer the defendant a PBT. And um, yes, the code requires you to offer somebody a PBT. Um, even if somebody's refusing to take tests and so on, you're required to do it. But failure to offer somebody a PBT doesn't result in suppression of evidence, right? Uh, so, you know, again, I don't know why you wouldn't offer somebody a PBT. Of course you'd offer somebody a PBT. That's great evidence uh, for us. And I don't, you know, even if it's all zeros, it just helps you to determine, okay, I don't want a breath test from this person. I want to take their blood because uh, this person's not um, somehow under the influence of alcohol. They are impaired somehow by some other drug. Uh, but the court here says, look, um, you don't get to have the choice between refusal and having your blood taken. If somebody refuses, they can be charged with refusal. And, oh, by the way, an officer is perfectly within his rights to get a search warrant for that person's blood. And so here, the search warrant proves the DUI offense, and you, of course, also have the unreasonable refusal offense. So that's really good. And by the way, if the person refuses to take let you take their blood after you have a search warrant, uh, a lot of jurisdictions are charging that as obstruction. Right, so now you've bought yourself three charges if you've refused, and also your, you know, DUI, and also you're refusing to have the search warrant. Now you've got three charges. So that's, you know, uh, somebody's refusal to comply with the DUI investigation is going to buy them a lot of trouble. But remember here that at the end of the day, your observations as an officer are going to be absolutely crucial. I mean, all these technical devices aside. Um, you know, if you look back at the cases about probable cause, if you look at um, Ronald versus Commonwealth, uh, in, which is a 2010 case, you have a, someone with a strong odor of alcohol, red glassy eyes, an argumentative demeanor, irrational and inconsistent statements. 
and a refusal to do field sobriety tests, in the eyes of the court, that was probable cause to arrest somebody for DUI. Right. And, and so, again, if you have somebody who's refusing to do, PB, do, re, refusing to do field sobriety tests, that's part of the calculation, right? You want to give them that opportunity and get their statement. What do they say in response? Uh, and then, you know, write that down, record that, play that. That's really crucial evidence that the person is under the, under the influence of alcohol. Um, in McGee versus Commonwealth, which is another case from 2010, uh, in that case, that was a, um, a drunken public case. But again, under the influence is the same, right? You've got a strong odor of alcohol, bloodshot eyes, slurred speech. The court said that was probable cause to believe that the defendant had consumed enough alcohol to visibly affect his manner, disposition, speech, muscular movement, general appearance, or behavior as is defined in the code, right? That's what it means to be under the influence of alcohol, that the alcohol somehow is visibly affected, your manner, disposition, speech, muscular movement, general appearance, or behavior. And people who are refusing to take tests, they still talk, they still have a disposition, they still have a manner, they still move their muscles, they still have a general appearance, they still have behavior. And field sobriety tests are just a way for you to document that or describe that. In Walford versus Commonwealth, this is an old case from 1986, but again, the statement, I drank a couple beers, uh, I had driving behavior, I was parked in the middle of the street with my lights off, uh, I'm talking you know, I'm talking to my girlfriend instead of moving my car out of the way, that's considered to be probable cause. Um, in Clark versus Commonwealth, which is a 2000 case, you had somebody with an odor of alcohol, bloodshot eyes, and speech that rose and dropped in pitch and volume. Now, Clark is a drunken public case. It's not a DUI case. But again, the only real difference between drunken public and DUI is that element of operation of a motor vehicle. In Fierst versus Commonwealth, um, he's passed out in the car with his head lying against the seat. And when asked for his license, he fumbles around. He produces a bunch of papers. He doesn't produce the license. Um, he's sweating heavily. He's got mumbly speech. He needs help to get out of the car. This is a case from 1970. And what I want you to notice about the description I gave you is this is a case without body cameras. This is a case without in-car cameras. This is a case where an officer is able to articulate what he's seeing. And for you today in 2022, coming on 2023, you know, your body camera is helpful, but will it capture the way the person is slumped down? Will your body camera, camera capture the person fumbling around? Hopefully, you're not standing over the window facing your body camera directly into the seat down facing where the suspect's hands are because that puts you in a pretty dangerous position as far as your traffic stop. My guess is you're probably standing back away from the, uh, the, the driver's door uh, and you're facing forward or at an angle. So again, that description of how he's fumbling around and getting with his papers and not producing his license is really crucial evidence. His perspiration, that's not getting caught on your body camera. It's not getting caught on your in-car camera. That is an officer's observations, their descriptions, and so on. Um, so again, you know, all these factors are things that you want to be able to articulate. Um, and of course, driving behavior is crucial, right? Um, and the person's statements, false statements, the persons that aren't going to you know, admit to you uh, to having consumed too much alcohol to be driving a vehicle. Uh, but if they deny having consumed an alcoholic beverage and it's clear that they have consumed an alcoholic beverage, that's still great evidence, right? Uh, that's Commonwealth versus Elliott, which is a 2003 case um, where you know somebody is denying consuming alcohol and that's considered to be good evidence in uh, a DUI prosecution. 
Now, it's not just the odor of alcohol, right? That doesn't show influence. I've got to be able to demonstrate that it's just I've got the odor of alcohol and they're under the influence. The odor can help me start an investigation. It can be a reason for me to start an investigation, but I do need more than that. Um, so just, you know, some things to think about today for uh, DUI cases. We talked about reasonable suspicion last time, and today I wanted to talk about probable cause. I hope today was interesting. It was a little different. Um, sometimes I do new cases from the Court of Appeals. Sometimes I do new laws, new statutes. I thought this time it would be interesting to do one that's sort of a review of a fundamental offense. So if you like this idea, uh, if you like this episode, you like these ideas, let me know. Uh, if you don't like the idea, then let me know that too. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Um, if you don't like the podcast, just don't tell your friends, don't tell anybody. Uh, but uh, we are on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher Podcasts, we're on Apple Podcasts. If you have some other app you want me to be on, let me know that too. If you have ideas for future episodes, I've gotten some really good ideas lately and I definitely want to follow up on them. Um, I'm happy to do some of those ideas too. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.